Coming up, Fernando Tatis's insane contract. The Carson Wentz era is over in Philadelphia. And all the Brooklyn Nets, should we pencil them in for the NBA Finals this upcoming summer? All that and then some, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you to all, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the J-Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to them. Of course, this pod is on all platforms, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to increase the visibility of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. In turn, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I can flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, and credible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen to and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to the website for more information about me, the pod, archive shows at www.jreels.com. I appreciate you all. I thank you very much for listening, trusting, and believing in me. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well as it's already the final Monday of the month. We're just one week away from March, but not the final podcast, though, as I'll share that toward the end of the program, but we're just getting started as I navigate you through the sports universe as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 179 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, February the 22nd in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast is as follows. The Carson Wentz era in Philadelphia is over. The embattled quarterback has been jettisoned to the Indianapolis Colts to reteam with his former offensive coordinator and the one Frank Reich. I'll talk about the after effects of this deal, what this means to not only Indianapolis, but also to the Eagles as they move forward. Jalen Hurts, is he going to be the answer? We'll get into all that later on, as well as the big contract signed last week. And even though spring training is now in full effect, a lot of the regular players, position players, will start to report today and even tomorrow in certain Areas out in Arizona and in Florida, but Fernando Tatis with his 14-year, $340 million contract, why that was very premature for the Padres to go ahead and sign their young superstar to that type of deal. 
So I'll be able to dissect that later on. We'll also get into a little bit of college basketball as we're now less than three weeks away from Selection Sunday. I'll go through the entire college circuit or at least the top 10 and look at Michigan's big win against Ohio State yesterday and what that means as far as Baylor and Gonzaga as being the top teams in the nation. I'll also get into what's happening on the ice and the NHL, man, they can't get out of their own way. Here they had this beautiful setting in Lake Tahoe over the weekend and they had to have games postponed. They had to move times, eight hours between periods, just an out and out disaster. So I'll touch on that later on as well as what happened down under a pretty much ho-hum, rather expected ending to the Australian Open where we had Novak Djokovic and also Naomi Osaka, your men's and women's championship winners. So I'll dive into that a little bit later on, as well as my hero and zero of the week. But we'll start us off here with what's going on in the association. lot to get into here with what has taken place over the past week. And right now, I know the big story, even with the Utah Jazz, they had that unbelievable streak where they had won 19 of 20 games before losing to the Clippers there on Friday night. And they've been on a run that we've talked about here for the last few weeks. And even though they still have the top spot in the West where the Lakers are pretty much breathing down their necks, same for the Clippers. But when you wake up this morning and start off the week, to me, the story right now is the Brooklyn Nets. And what they've been able to achieve here, especially over the past week, where they have now won six in a row. They were 5-0 and on a West Coast trip and won the last two games in L.A. Thursday night against the Lakers and then yesterday against the Clippers. And we'll get into those games in a second. But now you have to wonder whether or not this Brooklyn team, not going to say they're clicking on all cylinders, but now you have to wonder if this is going to be the team to beat, not just in the East, but overall in the entire league. Now, I know Stephen A. Smith last week, after the win over the Lakers, brought out the black and white pom-poms for the Nets saying that pencil them in, they're going to go to the finals, it's a foregone conclusion, and they're going to face the Lakers for the Lawrence O'Brien Trophy. But the one thing is, he failed to mention that the finals don't take place until June, probably into July this year, and I get that he's Mr. Hot Take, I get that He's a guy that I've always tweaked here over the course of the last God knows how long, pretty much since the beginning of this podcast. But, And I picked the Nets to go to the finals. And actually for them to win the final. Now, mind you, this is before the James Harden trade, but it's way too early to think that the Brooklyn Nets, despite the fact the way they're playing well and no Kevin Durant in the lineup as he's been out with the hamstring injury, and you got to like what you see. But as we all know, and we've seen this theme many times, that despite the fact that they have a lethal offensive team, but we know that over the course of two weeks or maximum seven games in a postseason against a good defensive team, that could bode as the kryptonite, and not to say there are a ton of great defensive teams in the league, but we all know that once you get into that rhythm of a seven-game series, as you get deeper into a series, you can kind of plan and figure out how to stop certain offensive players, And even though the Nets have three or probably the top 10 or 12 offensive players in the league, we still can't forecast or even think that the Brooklyn Nets are going to be a shoe-in to make it to the NBA Finals. Now, we could take a look back at this week where without Kevin Durant, you had the situation in Phoenix where they came back from a big deficit and that was without Kyrie Irving because they started that trip going back to the game in Golden State where they won that Saturday night game 
against the Warriors and then went to Sacramento after that going to Phoenix and coming out with that victory but you have to wonder when you look into the little bit of the crystal ball that I have it's all going to boil down to not whether or not they're going to outscore these teams but are the Nets going to defend and that's the big $64,000 question when it comes to this team because we all know that they're going to outscore everybody any given game, any given day, understood. But when you have a guy who has the sickest hand in the league and Kyrie Irving, who's not even the point guard anymore, when you have a guy like James Harden who puts up 30 points, 12 rebounds, and close to 10 assists every night, and then Kevin Durant, who after the Achilles injury, and despite him being in and out of the lineup with various issues, but when he's healthy, he certainly holds himself up there as one of the top two or three players in the league. And we know that they're going to be a tough out come late April into May, June, and possibly into July. But unless the GM of the Nets in a one Sean Marks goes out and gets some sort of reinforcements on the defensive end, and we get it. In order for him to get Harden, he had to trade away Jared Allen. If you heard a few weeks ago, that's a move I wouldn't have made. And we understand that the situation with Kyrie was pretty much tenuous at best not knowing what his situation was going to be and the Nets felt like they had to make this move in order to secure not only their chances of winning or even getting to the title but of course hoisting that trophy over their heads sometime this summer but how I look at it right now is that the Nets although they're going to be primed for a long deep postseason run we do have to pump the brakes a little bit to say that Let's just shut down the East right now and give them the Eastern Conference title and whoever comes out of the West, then so be it. We all know that the sport, the schedule, does not allow it to unfold that way. But the Nets right now, you got to look at them as a team that maybe they finally gotten their season on the tracks and arguably without their best player. We don't know when Durant's going to come back. If you're the Nets right now, He's got to be 110% before he comes back. No need to rush him. You can look at this winning streak and hang your hat on that where, again, as I said earlier, winning in LA against the Lakers, no Anthony Davis, but of course the Nets didn't have Kevin Durant either, but they performed well, made big shots, and they were able to dispose of the Lakers. And then last night, the game ended in a little bit of controversy with the charge by Kawhi Leonard against James Harden. I thought Harden sold it a little bit, he didn't flop. That's a tough way to end the game. You wonder if this was a playoff game or even an NBA final, let's say a pivotal game five or even, God forbid, a game seven, would that whistle would have been blown by the ref? You'd have to question that. Now, if there was an obvious push. You did see that with the left forearm of Kawhi Leonard. But like I said, I thought Harden did play well. We know he's not known for his defense, but raised the arms up a little bit, exaggerated, got the call, and the Nets were able to secure the win and fly back home to where they're now, what, about a game back from the top spot in the Philadelphia 76ers. In fact, they're a half game behind them when it comes to the East. And if you're a Net fan, the 20 of you that are out there, and I'm sure growing by the second, although you're happy, although you're ecstatic that this team looks to maybe finally get its bearings, But we'll say this time and time again between now and the end of the basketball season. You cannot win every game in the 120s, the 130s, even the 140s. All you got to do is look at that game 
what was it, three weeks ago against the Wizards where he lost 149-146. Now we know the Nets can score. We know their offensive firepower. We've talked about it. But the main thing is, is are they going to get stops? And especially stops in the postseason. And until those needs are addressed by the GM, by management, etc., whether it's a perimeter player or even a guy that just clogs the middle, they're going to need that in the worst way. And I'm sure the Nets will do whatever it takes to bring that guy in. And it's not going to be DeMarcus Cousins who was released from the Rockets just the other day. So we just have to stand pat and see. But right now the Nets, you got to wonder when all three guys are in the lineup and they're healthy and they're playing on a consistent level, game in, game out. This is what the fan base has been starving for. Going back to the days of New Jersey, back to the days of Jason Kidd when they last made it to the NBA Finals in the early 2000s. So we'll continue to see how this uh, all plays out with the coach Steve Nash and what he does in big moments with these key players in Kyrie, James Harden, Kevin Durant, etc. And what the front office will do to bring in any reinforcement because they know that come postseason as much as making shots is important getting stops is just as important so let's see how they handle that as we get closer to the deadline which I believe is March 25th so there is plenty of time between now and then for the Nets to make that move but something to keep in mind here as we move forward so I wanted to start off there just to get this show on the tracks And now to go through the rest of the association as well as the winter sports before we get into the baseball and also the big trade with Carson Wentz, among other things. When we look at the Lakers here, the main concern is now Anthony Davis. And if you're Frank Vogel and Rob Palenka, etc., you know you're going to take 1,000 extra caution with this player because as much as LeBron says that it's all on me with AD being out but we know they're not going to win a championship without him and that's not a hot take that's just how it is because without having that presence in the middle and without having that extra threat there on the floor and Davis on both ends not even just on the offensive side but with the situation here where now that Achilles has bothered him to the point where they're going to wait four weeks to assess what that injury will mean They're crossing their fingers that it's not going to be surgery. It doesn't look like there's any type of tear or rupture. But the Lakers season pretty much hangs on the health of a one Anthony Davis. And you have to wonder whether or not he's going to be at 100% at any point this year. Because even if they bring him back, have the minutes restriction, have a stretch where he's not going to play back-to-back, all that. But as we all know, with this sport... And he's had his history of injuries going back to his days in New Orleans. I understand it may not be the Achilles. It could be other maladies that he's had along the way. But when you're a big man and you've logged as many minutes as he's had, and as I said earlier, when they won the championship in mid-October, and then here it is, late December, they're starting back up again, not having enough time to rest and He's getting paid the big bucks. He signed that $195 million deal in the offseason. But we all know if the Lakers are even thinking about repeating this year, if he is not in the lineup, you could pretty much forget it. So we're going to have to wait and see in about another three weeks' time whether or not Anthony Davis will be 
seen on an NBA floor playing in meaningful games. So I know every Laker fan, they are holding their breath until they're blue in the face. So we'll certainly continue to keep our eyes on that. And then you had a situation last week where you had some comments from Draymond Green when it comes to players in the league. Now, this isn't a tampering issue. This is just his opinion on what's been going on here where he talked about Andre Drummond in particular. And I know in the weeks past I said Detroit Pistons, he got traded from Detroit to Cleveland. So that's my error there. But with Drummond being sat out of a game last week where Cleveland was at Golden State, and for him to say, why are the Cavaliers sitting him down and it's perfectly fine, but when James Harden pouts and wants to get out of Houston, it becomes a bigger story. It's the double standard that it's a right for management to sit a player out or have him down because of the possibility of him getting traded or buyout or something of that nature to where James Harden, if he doesn't want to report or if he wants to sit out or if he's looking for a deal to get shipped to a team that's going to contend for a championship, what's the difference? I can't disagree with Draymond Green about that, but here's the difference. When you have a guy that is just asking to be out and he's doing everything possible from the standpoint of going to Atlanta and Vegas to show up at birthday parties without masks, to report to camp late and overweight, out of shape, and then for him in the post game to come out and say, this is not a good situation for me, I'm done, see ya. Listen, he could have done that privately, he could have done that just with him and the coach, or him with the organization. Obviously he's built enough currency with them to say, listen guys, this isn't going to work out for me, is there any way, shape, or form that you could get me out of here? And then if they were to sit him out at that point, fine. But we get that that's James Harden. He's a former MVP. He's an all-NBA player. And if he's going to be in the building healthy, as private as those discussions would have been, the fan base would have been an uproar to say, wait a minute, why is this guy sitting out on the sideline when he should be out in the court playing? And understood. But the flip side of that is when you have a guy like Andre Drummond or even Blake Griffin, who is a one-time all-star in this league, Guys like that aren't anywhere close in the stratosphere of what James Harden is. So even if Detroit with Griffin or even Cleveland with Drummond, if they're putting him on ice because there's going to be a deal at some point in the coming days, and as of right now, and it's been about, what, six, seven days, they're still on ice. But for the organizations to do that, they know that these players aren't going to be part of the long-term future here. And not only that, but they're not even big players at that. Drummond, as we all know, has a lot of promise, a lot of potential, but hasn't really lived up to that. He's a guy that floats in and out of these games. And let's face it, Blake Griffin, his best days are behind him. Will he have his moments? Absolutely. But he is not the ferocious dunker. The guy's going to fill the lane anymore like he once did. Obviously, a lot of that has to do with injuries, wear and tear on his body. But we all know that he is nowhere near what he once was. So with that, you can't even compare that to Harden because with Griffin looking to sign a deal or get a buyout to go elsewhere is a lot different than a guy that has been pouting, a guy that has been looking for his exit before he even got there or reported to training camp. And how he handled that was as deplorable as you could possibly have. And I talked about that last week and obviously the time of the trade between the Nets and the Rockets. So 
not that I'm trying to dig up old stories or dig up old narratives, but the bottom line is, although Draymond is right in that regard, but you cannot compare Harden's situation to Drummond's and Blake Griffin's. That's all there is to it. A couple other things with uh, what's going on throughout the league. The Spurs, who have played very well here at the start of the season, have now had five games postponed due to four players testing positive for COVID. Let's see what that does for the long term with this team, not only having to make up these games, but what kind of effect that this long layoff will have to a young and very under-the-radar Spurs team. We know Coach Popovich, he's going to do whatever it takes, and there's no questioning as far as his coaching ability is concerned, but this is going to be a true test for a young team that's looking to make some hay and looking to stamp their way through a very competitive Western Conference. So who knows when they're going to reconvene. You would think at some point, maybe middle or later this week, but no reports yet as to when they're going to resume their season. So something to keep in mind. I know LeBron hit 35,000 points in that game against the Brooklyn Nets on Thursday. 35,000 points. He has over 9,000 rebounds and 9,000 assists. He is going to be the first guy to be in the 30,000 point club with 10,000 rebounds and 10,000 assists. I mean, just think about that. And I'm not here to throw bouquets at LeBron because I've done that in the past. And really, how many more bouquets can you throw at this man? But when it's all said and done, he's going to have the greatest career regular season. Postseason, different story. We know he's an all-time great. We know he's on Mount Rushmore, at least in my eyes he is. But when it comes to start to finish, to have the career that he's had, that it'll be incomparable to anybody else in the almost 75-year history of this league, it's unparalleled. Think about it. Kareem doesn't have 30, 10, and 10. Now, we know he's the all-time leading scorer, and he has well over 10,000 rebounds, but he's no way he has anywhere close to 10,000 assists. When you break it down, there is no comparison. And to think, he's still going strong. He's the leading candidate for the MVP this year. And you would think at the age of 36 and all the minutes that he's logged throughout his career, not even just the regular season, but the postseason as well, and he has not missed a step. Which when you sit down and really think about it, it's the guy's superhuman. I mean, geez. I mean, how much more can you say about the guy? But anyway, that's something that uh, need to be brought up. 35,000 points, third all-time, so he's only behind Karl Malone and obviously the aforementioned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Let's see if Utah will start another streak as they'll play the Charlotte Hornets at home tonight. I mentioned earlier that they had that long winning streak. They had won 19 of 20 games before losing the back end of a two-game series in LA against the Clippers where they won the first game and then they lost the Second game there, I believe it was Friday night off the top of my head. So when the Jazz now start up again with their record at 24-6, and still atop the Western Conference, let's see if they can continue to go on a roll and have this season where, again, if it doesn't end up in a conference finals at minimum, to me it's a loss and a bust of the season. And we understand injuries and things like that could pop up. Get it. Get all that. But... The Jazz, we all know that when you have such a great start and such a season that looks like it's going to be very special, when you have the likes of the Lakers, the Clippers, you want to throw Denver in there, that's fine. They have to go deep and as far into the playoffs as they possibly can. Still plenty of time between now and then. I know I've said time and time again, 
You have to play this out. You have to wait and see how this all breaks down. But Utah, give them props. But there's still a long way to go in the season. So no trophies are going to be handed out to a Jazz team here on February 22nd. And other than that here throughout the league, what else you had? I know New Orleans made history here in back-to-back games where on Friday night, they were the first team in the history of the league, or really since the shot clock, I should say. And that's going back, what, 70 years, or almost 70 years, to where they had a double-digit lead heading into the fourth quarter against Phoenix. I think they were up by 14, and then they lost by 18. So when it was all said and done, they gave back a double-digit lead so fast and so quick that before you know it, if you looked at the score, you'd be like, all right, Phoenix won a game against New Orleans, no big deal. But to go into the fourth quarter having that type of lead and then just to squander it to the point where the lead that you have ended up being worse than what you had at the back end. Meaning that they were up by 14 and it's not as if they lost by 10 or 11. No, they lost by 18. So they had that situation to deal with and as we know and talked about from time to time, the marriage there with Stan Van Gundy and his players right now looks like it hasn't been the best of marriages. But they were able to redeem themselves there yesterday against the Celtic team, which I'll spend a minute on in a second. But for them to have a 24-point deficit erased with about six minutes to go, and the game did go into overtime, but they played some defense. Celtics settled for too many jumpers as always, and they were able to pull out a 120-115 to 115 game yesterday. So it made up for the debacle that they experienced there on Friday night and turned their, I don't want to say season around because they're still there at the bottom or near the bottom of the Western Conference, but at least for one day, made themselves feel pretty good and winning against a quality opponent. So give the young Pelicans some credit. And as far as the Celtics go, I'm not going to add much here. All I'm going to say is that they're at 500, 15 and 15. They can't get out of their own way. If it's not Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, you pretty much don't have left of a supporting cast there. And I get a lot of people look at the Gordon Hayward departure or him leaving to go to Charlotte as being the determining factor as to why this team hasn't been clicking on all cylinders. I said it then, I'll say it right now. To me, Hayward, that was a relief that he was off the team. And not because he was a bad guy, not because I didn't like him as a player, but to me, it just seemed as if the fit wasn't right. And although he did show some flashes there, especially last year, where he played close to that all-star level and knowing that he had to pretty much facilitate and be the guy that was the third or even at times the fourth best player on the team because the young guns were certainly going to get their burn and then Kemba Walker was a new guy that was part of the mix. So Hayward had to play the ultimate teammate and come back and be the guy that was more of a glue guy. And even though he's not getting paid that way, but he had to be that teammate to not take the ball or hog the ball or not be the guy that's going to play hero ball. No, he did the ultimate sacrifice. And then came the offseason, so it was best for him to go elsewhere. He did get his own team. That was a lot of the rumors or rumblings that Hayward was a guy that wanted to go start over and to be a part of a team that was young, but at the same time be the focal point of the offense. And as you can see, he's actually paying dividends down there in the Carolinas, where the Celtics right now, they're just running around with their heads cut off. No Marcus Smart, 
which is a guy, as I said before, the heart and soul and blood and guts of this team. He's not going to be seen until after the All-Star break because of that calf injury. And the Celtics are just going through the motions here. They have not played well. Yesterday was indicative of that. You know, they lost to the Hawks there on Wednesday night. They did beat them on Friday. Kemba Walker has been a disaster. Yesterday shot one for 12 from three. He's just chucking up shots left and right. And we know he's a volume shooter. And he's a guy that's going to take that shot no matter what. You give him credit for it. But man, it seems as if he misses way too much more than he makes. And that's a guy that's going to be pivotal for the Celtics to go anywhere. Because you know he's not going to add much on the defensive end. He's going to have to get those point totals up. As you saw there on Friday night against the Hawks there. Where he shot 10 for 16, 28 points. And that's the Kemba Walker that the Celtics and their fans are hoping to get. More so than what you saw there yesterday in New Orleans. And that's all I'll say about the Celtics from that standpoint. But besides that, the association is pretty much nothing really much to get too crazy about or get deep into. Those are, to me, the top stories of the week. There really isn't anything else to dive into when it comes to even the early race, if you want to look at that, in both the East and the West. I know the Knicks have played pretty well. In fact, the Knicks are just a half game behind the Celtics. That's all you need to know about how Boston's been playing. But give credit to the Knicks. They've done very well here under coach Tom Thibodeau. The Heat, they're still waiting to get themselves on track, even though they did beat the Lakers there on Saturday night. And then you could say out west, even with the New Orleans winning, although they have played a little bit better, but they're still a ways and far behind what a lot of people expected them to be this year. And then you have... Denver there was at the bottom of the Western Conference as far as the eight seeds are concerned. They're at seven. And you had that game the other night with Jamal Murray, which was crazy. He scored 50 points in a game without even shooting a free throw or even having an attempt. Forget about just shooting a free throw. He didn't have one attempt, but he had a monster game. What was he, 21 of 25? He shot 84% from the field, which was the most, I think, since Will Chamberlain. When maybe, I don't think it was the 100-point game he had against the Knicks, but he was the first player since Wilt to not only hit for 84% from the field, but at the same time score 50 points. And when you do that, you know you've had a monster game. So, yeah, that's pretty much what's going on in the association right now. And let me transition that to what's going on in the National Hockey League. And I'll start with the good. Let's go there first, because I know I've been pounding the NHL into submission with the way the COVID cases and how these teams have to reschedule these games and not knowing when these games are going to be rescheduled, etc. But I'll start with some good, and that is the NHL and their teams. The cases are starting to go down a little bit to the point where you're starting to see teams play a little bit more consistently. Now, there are some games that need to be made up. There are some postponements even later in the week with some of these games. I believe Carolina, who's had their share of Games that need to be rescheduled. But with the way things are starting to shape up now, they're hoping that the worst is behind them. And pretty much since they started the season, it has been an absolute slog for them to get through this first month plus because we've talked about it here for weeks on end. Whether you're a lot of the teams in the East for that matter, whether you're the Devils, whether you're the Capitals, obviously with Ovechkin being out, Buffalo, the Flyers had their little skid here where they missed four games. It was just nonstop, and that's not even including Carolina and even Dallas to start their season, and now Dallas is going through it with everything that's happening in Texas with the storm that they haven't been able to 
reschedule games. Now, I believe they're in Florida here. They're playing the Panthers tonight, so hopefully they could get themselves on track. But with the NHL right now, they're just hoping to just get through this. They've gone through hell and high water just to even get to this point here. And they're not going to jeopardize the season. They would have to have multiple teams down at the same time in order for them to do that. And we know that they're already bleeding money as it is to begin with. But if you're the National Hockey League, and right now, when you look at the future of this sport, just from this season, I'm not talking about down the road, two, three, four, five, ten years from now, but just for the rest of this season, they are hoping that they could get themselves together, pull up their bootstraps, lace the skates, etc., and just try to finish the season as soon as possible. And you would think they're going to start to incorporate bubbles again because the last thing they need is to go through this in the postseason where they know if they start the bubble scenario, and again, the players have to agree upon that, and that will be the best case scenario, not only just for them to get through this regular season, but if they want to crown a champion, that's going to be the best route for them to go. But again, plenty of time between now and then to discuss that. And then the other thing is that even with this crazy season that has taken place so far, you do have some teams there that have shown some promise and surprise. And again, this could flip-flop in a matter of a week because last week I was talking about how Tampa seems to be on the fast track to the Stanley Cup Finals again as they were just breezing through everybody after their slow start and not getting their season underway. But now, when you look at the Central, and we'll start there, the Carolina Hurricanes have played very well. And granted that it's a logjam there at the top, not only with the Panthers, even with the Blackhawks, they've been very surprising here. Remember, no Jonathan Tays, who has been out with that injury that has been ongoing and is indefinite as to when he's going to return. And Tampa has hit the skids here a little bit, but they're only four points behind Carolina there at the top of the Central. So when you look at some of these teams, whether it's Carolina for one, I know the league has to be happy with the way Toronto's been playing because we all know Toronto has suffered that long drought of not making it to the Stanley Cup Finals or at least winning one. And in my lifetime, they haven't even been to a Stanley Cup Final. So the closest they got was in 93 against the LA Kings and when they lost to Gretzky. So when the Maple Leafs up north are making some hay and hoping that they have a long and deep postseason run, that's going to be good for the league itself. Granted that it's not in the States, it's not the Rangers, it's not the Bruins, the Red Wings, or Blackhawks, but they are an original six team. And if they were to put their stamp on an NHL season where they do find themselves in a Stanley Cup final, then they're going to do backflips and jump for joy and pop the Dom Perignon all over the place if you're Gary Bettman and company. And then you have the Blues, who are the Stanley Cup champions from two years ago. Right now, they have actually played very well to them being at the top of the Western Conference right now. So you have to look at what the Blues have done, and they started off very slow. Vegas has hit the skids here a little bit after this very fast start. And I'm going to get to Vegas in a second. But with the rest of the league and then, of course, the East, how can we forget them? The Bruins have played well. Bruins had that big win there yesterday out in Lake Tahoe, which I'll expound on in a minute. But with the Caps, Flyers, Penguins, Islanders, everybody's pretty much in that vicinity of two points that are separating them in the Eastern Conference. So it has been very competitive for the diehard hockey fan or even the hockey fan that does follow the sport because what they need right now, they're not going to get eyeballs to the sets. 
They're not going to have the casual fan peek in from time to time to see what's going on until it gets to the postseason when they look at who is going to be representing in each of the East and West. What they need to do right now, as I said before, and I'll say it one last time, they just have to get through the season. And even if nobody's watching, if five people are watching, or if there is some momentum that will build up between now and let's say the postseason, and just like the NBA where a lot of these games are meaningless and nobody really cares, but even for 56 games and as concentrated as the season as this is, they just want to get to the finish line. And by that is the end of the regular season. Postseason is another story. It's another animal that they'll certainly look into as I'm sure they are looking into right now because again, how are they going to get through this without a bubble? I don't know. Looks like the NBA could do that right now and I'm sure as much as they want to copycat that, but if these cases do happen to go by the wayside and that these teams do not have to worry about having to reshuffle the deck when it comes to the schedule, if these games can be made up and if they can have worthy opponents in the postseason without a disparity of, let's say, one team playing 56 and the team in the same division has played 50 games. So all they want to do is just get to the end and then worry about what the postseason will look like at that time. And as far as what took place over the weekend in Lake Tahoe, now the outdoor series, as we all know, it's part of the NHL's big way to endorse the sport. Having New Year's Day pretty much to themselves, especially early on during a regular year, means the Winter Classic. And although we're deep into winter, and obviously no such thing as a Winter Classic this year, but for them to have these games at Edgewood Resort out there in Lake Tahoe, the beautiful setting there on the 18th fairway of that golf course and hoping that everything would be executed flawlessly. Of course, no fans, but they had it right there by the lake, the trees, snow. I mean, it was just as gorgeous as you could possibly have it. But just like everything else in the NHL this year, sadly, between that first game Saturday between Vegas and the Colorado Avalanche, After the first period where you had players tripping all over the ice, sliding everywhere, hitting divots because the sun and pretty much the temperature, obviously the sun had a lot to do with it, but the temps were about freezing. And pretty much even when you have a day that's not cold with a significant wind chill, you're going to have an instance where you'll see these players hitting these divots, flying all over the place, not being able to go in full stride, and what happened was that the end of the first period, they decided to shut it down, wait eight hours to almost midnight here, or even after midnight, local time here in the East. Remember, Lake Tahoe was three hours behind. So where they had to resume the game between Vegas and Colorado, which if you're an NHL fan, or even a sports fan for that matter, once you saw that, you didn't even bother or probably could care less as to what the final score of the game was. And we know Vegas is an opponent there out west where there are a lot of cup aspirations. Same for Colorado for that matter. And they have one of the great young players in the game in Nathan McKinnon. But once again, even if you're a casual hockey fan and you're a diehard sports fan and you tuned in to see some of that just because of the setting and the environment, and when they had to postpone that first period, you probably said to yourself, all right, well, I'm checking out and finding something else to watch. And really, are you going to come back at midnight to... Watch a game between two teams that you probably couldn't name five players on each squad. So you had that to deal with. And then the game yesterday between Philadelphia and Boston, which was to be played out there. 
was supposed to be a 2 p.m. start time, but had to move that to 7.30 because, of course, they didn't want to experience the same thing that they did on Saturday between Vegas and Colorado. So to be safe, they started at 4.30 local time, which was tough to watch in the beginning because you had the glare of the sun, especially in the first goal of the game, which was, what, 34 seconds in by David Pasternak, who had a hat trick in the game. Uh, You couldn't even see where the puck was. Before you know the puck was in the net, but you couldn't tell whether the puck was in the net or went over the boards or went past them. It was just tough to watch. But they were able to pull it off. They were able to execute it. I'm sure not in the shape or fashion that the NHL was hoping to kind of have a, not only just a different setting, but one that was more outdoorsy as opposed to usually these winter classics where they're in either baseball stadiums or football stadiums, college football stadiums, etc., And it brought a very good aesthetic to the eye. And it goes without saying. But at the same time, it just made you check out because after that first period there on Saturday, that was it. You knew you were going to come back later on to watch that. And then last night's game or yesterday's game, which would have been in the afternoon, you kind of forget about it because if it doesn't involve your team or if you're not the die-in-the-wool hockey fan, you're just not going to care. So it was just a shame to see. And it wasn't their fault. The NHL tried to do as best as they possibly could. You know, you can't control Mother Nature in that situation, whether it was sunny or... I'm sure they would have preferred rain. Maybe not a thunderous rain, but they probably would have preferred that as opposed to having the sun because at least the rain, it's still going to keep the ice slick. It almost has a Zamboni-like effect when it comes to the course of a period where you're just going to have nothing but snow and it's not going to be as nice as it would be to start off a period... So unfortunately, the NHL, again, just trying to get through this season, piecing it with bubblegum, scotch tape, Elmer's glue, you name it. And man, I I know it was a tough weekend for them, but they were able to pull it off. And now it's on to the next. And hopefully, like I said before, they're able to get through the season a little bit more unscathed than they had through these first five or six weeks of the season. So, But that's what we got there with the NHL. Uh, other than that, you do have one note that I'd like to share, and that's Connor McDavid, the Edmonton Oiler center, who is pretty much going to be the guy that's carrying the torch for this league after Sidney Crosby. And Crosby just played in his 1,000th game the other day, and we all know he's going to be a first ballot lock Hall of Famer. Well, McDavid is going to be the guy after Crosby to carry the mantle. We understand he plays in Edmonton. People here in the States couldn't tell you where Edmonton is if you paid him a million dollars in cash. But McDavid, who scored his 500th point with an assist there against Winnipeg on Thursday and only his 369th game, it's just a shame that here's a guy as talented as he is, is, I'm not going to say forgotten, but you don't really get to see him play that much because he's on a nondescript team, although they are talented and young, but they're the Edmonton Oilers. And with the way the divisions are this year where they're playing in the north which is all the Canadian teams playing together the chances of you watching and play are going to be few and far between unless you have the center ice package or again you're that guy that just eats sleeps and drinks hockey but McDavid is a guy who as much as he's bright lights and box office because of his talent but he's pretty much forgettable because of where he plays and his games aren't even on tv and that's not a knock on him or the organization or the league, but sadly, he's a guy that's not going to be on anybody's radar despite how great he's been and how great he's probably going to be here in the future. 
So that's it there with uh, McDavid and Edmonton. And they're actually playing pretty well. So I hope that they make it to the postseason because they only had that one year where they made it to a conference semis and they lost in a game seven to Anaheim a few years back. So we will uh, continue to monitor them as the days and weeks continue to fly on by. So before I get to Fernando Tatis, his contract and uh, everything that's going on in baseball as camps have opened up in Arizona and Florida, I want to get to this Carson Wentz trade because as intriguing as the trade was and what the Eagles got back in return, the one thing here when you look at this offseason and you wonder if this is going to be like this, in particular here in New York with Sam Darnold, if he's going to be the next quarterback jettisoned or anybody else if your name is Aaron Rodgers or even Russell Wilson, those guys aren't going to go anywhere, but you know that somebody's going to bring up some report about Rodgers being unhappy or even Wilson again with the whole offensive line and having say with personnel, etc. But the situation in Philadelphia, you got to wonder. Three years ago, they won a Super Bowl. And now here they are, they could end up being the worst team in the league. So for the Philadelphia Eagles to pretty much, not going to say dismantle this team, But for them to pretty much start over three years after the fact, and you got your championship, Philadelphia, so you can't go wrong or you can't get too crazy, but we know how that fan base is. You have to wonder whether or not that this trade is going to end up coming back to bite them, not only just from the this coming year with the cap hit that they're taking with the dead money, 33 million or whatever it is, 33 and a half, 33.8, which is the most all time in NFL history. But now Wentz being reunited with his former offensive coordinator in Indianapolis with Frank Reich, who was on that Super Bowl team. Watch Wentz turn out to be, I'm not going to say an all-pro, but watch him be a four- or five-time Pro Bowl player. And with the Eagles, you're going to end up with Jalen Hurts, and I'm sure they're going to bring in some competition to back him up or somebody that could probably take his spot. Who knows who that guy's going to be right now. It's way too early to tell. But if you're an Eagle fan, you have to wonder... Why didn't they get more? And maybe some of it had to do with that cap hit that they took. But for them just to get a third round pick in this upcoming draft and then a conditional second round pick that it could be a first depending on Wentz's playing time this coming year whether he plays 75% of the snaps or if the Colts make the playoffs and plays at least in 70% of the snaps. So I'm sure they have their fingers crossed on that. Now the Colts, you would expect that they're going to be A very good team next year. They're probably going to be in the 20s with that first round pick if you're going to think that far ahead. But you have to wonder if you're the Eagles what direction this team's going to go right now because you bring in this young coach from the Indianapolis Colts, from Reich's staff and one Nick Sirianni with a young and pretty much green quarterback, a guy who, can you hang your hat on Jalen Hurts? Small sample size last year. Did show flashes, but he's incomplete right now. We know the situation at wide receiver. They just let go of Deshaun Jackson yesterday, I believe. You had a number one pick in Jalen Rager, who certainly underachieved, and you wonder whether or not they couldn't pick Justin Jefferson instead, who had a phenomenal and historic rookie year for the Vikings. So I understand we can look at it from more from the Eagles standpoint than from the Colts, but if you're Howie Roseman and Jeffrey Loria, the GM and owner of this franchise, 
you have to wonder whether or not this team is going to be capable of rebuilding it back up. And we all know it's a lot of it's based on the quarterback. But it looks like there's going to be some lean years here in Philadelphia with no end in sight. And we understand NFL's year-to-year. Who knows? They could get lucky with a draft pick or maybe get the quarterback that they've coveted. It all remains to be seen. But it's just incredible to think that the team that had a long-awaited Super Bowl championship and three years afterwards, they let go of the coach, which a lot of people thought that that was going to be the case because they were going to keep Carson Wentz because of all the money that he was owed and that there was no way they were going to release him. But even that wasn't enough. They felt as if they wanted to start over. And that's where I questioned the GM and the owner there because if that relationship between Wentz and Peterson was irreparable and they get rid of the coach, then why weren't they able to look Carson Wentz in the eye, say that you're the guy, and try to, I hate to say it this way, coddle him to the point where he comes back and it's his team. We're going to do our best to supply you with the talent on the offensive side of the ball, receivers, running backs, offensive line. And I know that they had a lot of money in cap and they had some issues to work out there, but I'm sure there were conversations. Obviously, I'm not privy to them, but you got to wonder, why weren't they able to work this out with Wentz, knowing that here in the short term, they have to deal with this cap hit and then they're going to have to pretty much dig themselves out of a huge hole to get themselves back to being anywhere near a Super Bowl champion that they were a few years ago. And that's the one thing I don't understand as to why weren't they able to work it out even after they fired the coach with their number two overall pick from 2016. Maybe they just thought, new coach, let's just start all over. Which in the NFL is dangerous, and especially in that city with that fan base. So that's number one. Now the other thing is the flip side with the Colts. This could be everything that Carson Wentz was looking for and then some. Now I'm not trying to make Carson Wentz out to be Peyton Manning who's going to pretty much turn that franchise around. He's going to be the guy that's going to lead him to a Super Bowl, etc. But you would think that the minute Wentz touched down in Indianapolis and was picked up at the airport probably by Reich and... They were already probably going through the playbook as to what they're going to do for next year. I mean, you would think. And Wentz now has a new lease on life. Said all the right things there on Instagram about Philadelphia, about the fans, the organization, etc. Did the right thing. And mind you, it didn't pan out the way it looked like it was going to be when you think about that game back in 2017 when they were 11-2 and and he went in for that touchdown run. I believe it was a 4th and one at the LA Coliseum against the Rams and he tore his ACL. We all know the rest is history with Nick Foles and the Super Bowl. It seemed ever since that day and even though he brought his team to the postseason there in his last full year in 2019 and left that game against Seattle with the stress fracture in his back and then the year before that when they made it to the postseason but Nick Foles carried them again to a playoff victory in Chicago and then a close call in New Orleans But pretty much since that ACL tear and the heroics of Nick Foles, Carson Wentz had way too much of an uphill battle for him to get anything close to the MVP form that he would have been that year if he stayed healthy. And now, with him and his alliances with Frank Reich, and now him being the man in Indianapolis, he does have a running game to speak of and a one Jonathan Taylor. 
He does have some wideouts there. If your name is Michael Pittman, the rookie that they drafted this year, and I believe T.Y. Hilton is still on the contract. So they have some pieces to play with and a very good offensive line, as we know, led by Quentin Nelson. This could be a match made in heaven for a one Carson Wentz. And this is the perfect landing spot for him, if you ask me. What that means for the Colts moving forward, does it automatically make them a 12-win AFC South clinching division team? Time will tell. But as of today, if you're a Colts fan, you got to be ecstatic, knowing that you pretty much gave up nothing. And even if that turns out to be a number one pick, it's probably going to be in the 20s. So if you're going to trade, in essence, a number one pick for Carson Wentz, and remember, that's not until next year. That's not this year's pick, because remember, they sent their number two pick in the draft to them. That is next year, 2022. So you would think that's going to be a high draft pick for the Eagles, so I'm sure they would have done that in a heartbeat. So that's the deal with Wentz. And then you had some sad news just a couple of hours after I finished recording the podcast where Vincent Jackson, the former San Diego Charger and Tampa Bay Buccaneer wide receiver, very good receiver too in his day, who had passed away. Early reports was that he was missing, was nowhere to be found, and then he announced himself, I believe it was right before Valentine's Day, where he was staying at a hotel in South Tampa and found dead there last Monday morning where housekeeping actually went in one of the days over the weekend where they saw Jackson sitting on a sofa in his room. I guess when they went in, they saw him there and they just closed the door thinking that he was out of sleep. But then a couple days later, they decided to go back and he was pretty much in the same position and then that was it. He just expired. There were bouts of alcoholism. We don't know about what the cause of death was, but a lot of the reports out there said that he was deep into alcoholism. I don't know how bad it was between him and his family, but for him to stay at a hotel, who knows how fractured that situation was, and obviously that's not our business, but just a terrible story, especially a week after the Buccaneers winning a Super Bowl, to have that news come down, just a tragic ending to a very good wide receiver in the league. I believe it was a four-time Pro Bowl player. But Vincent Jackson at the age of 38 dies way too soon and just a sad way to kick off your NFL season to get that type of news coming through with a player that was just a few years removed from playing in the league. So thoughts, condolences go out to the Jackson family for that just very sad and unfortunate story. All right, now let's turn our attention here to baseball. As I said a couple of times, the exhibition season will begin at the end of this week where a lot of the players have actually reported and hope springs eternal for 30 major league baseball teams pretty much starting today as for all intents and purposes, the baseball season has begun. Now, obviously it's not officially beginning until April 1st, but at least we could hope and dream and just have those warm and fuzzy thoughts when we look at the video there in Florida or Arizona, whichever team that you may follow to have that pep in your step to think that your baseball team can make some noise here in 2021. And the one team that is looking to make a lot of noise is the San Diego Padres. And we know what they've done here over the last few years, whether it's signing Eric Hosmer a few years back to that long eight-year, $180 million deal, whether it was signing Manny Machado a couple of years ago to his $300 million deal, the trades that were made for Mike Clevenger, the trades that was made for Blake Snell, Hugh Darvish, and then 
the blockbuster of them all was the signing of Fernando Tatis, who has only played in 145 games in his major league career and has been a major league player as far as service goes for two years. So not only did the Padres scrap the last four years of his rookie contract, they obliterated it by giving him a 14-year, $340 million contract where it's a no-trade clause that's been instituted as well as no opt-out. So no matter what, not after year five, six, seven, halfway through or 10 years in, he's not going to be able to opt out of his contract or have a no trade, which he would have to veto or can veto at any cost. Now, this contract was backloaded. It was built for right now, or at least for the next four years, because part of this contract or the first part, he's only getting paid $34 million in the first four years of this contract, which is very smart, very wise, because when you look at the aforementioned Hosmer, also remember Blake Snell that they brought in, I believe, for his next two or three years on his contract, which is going to pay him somewhere about close to $40 million. You also have you Darvis, who's on the books for a big number as well. And then you have to think about once that clears after those four years where they could probably still bring in some reinforcements if, let's say, come the trade deadline this year, if they want to bring in another starter or another bat or whatever it may be, they could do that. So there is some flexibility there. But here is the problem that I have with this contract. We understand that his talent is undeniable. Right now, he is arguably one of the top 20 players in baseball. And I know baseball came out with this list of MLB's top 100 where they had, I think, Tatis either five or six, which was just outrageous. Now, Tatis, we know he's able to flash the glove and he has the quick bat, the flair, the charisma, everything to be that top 10 player. But I can count 10 players that are better than him right now. And I'm not going to go through the list just yet because I want to talk about this contract. But Tatis is a guy that you're basing on potential. And mind you, it's potential that's through the roof. But he's already suffered a back injury a couple years ago, which had to end his season. And we know backs are forever. You could get surgery, you could get acupuncture, whatever it is. Backs could be bulky for the rest of your life. And mind you, he's 22 years old. So if he's already starting off with a back injury, what does that mean for him when he gets later into his 20s and and into his 30s? And mind you, this contract's going until he's 36. So that's just number one. Now, the other thing is that if they wanted to give him an extension, if they wanted to say the hell with the next four years, let's give you a sizable contract, years, money, why couldn't they have gone the route of the Braves where they gave Ronald Acuna Jr., I believe after his second year, or maybe it was even after his rookie year, from what I remember, they gave him an eight-year, $100 million contract. Why couldn't they do that? I understand who am I to tell A.J. Preller, the GM of the Padres, how to spend his money. But when you have a kid who, as we all know, could be the best player in baseball at some point in the near future, but to give him all that money right now, and then on top of that, you combine that with the injury history, for a guy that you're basing on his potential, Now, Acuna has already won a rookie of the year and he's already one of the top, in my estimation, he's already a top 10 player in the sport as it is. 
And you could see why the Braves did that. But why did the Padres have to go all out to keep Tatis when they could have done it a lot cheaper? All right, maybe not eight for 100. Maybe his representation would have laughed at that, but they could have given him eight for 150 or eight for 160 for that matter to make it 20 million a year on an average annual value. But instead, they gave him the 340 million. We know he's going to be pretty much a Padre for life unless there happens to be a falling out between the two at some point throughout the course of this contract where they trade him to a team that he wants to go to. I understand they're not thinking that, and nor they should. But at the same time, this is the biggest dice roll that any organization has done with its young player. And to me, it's even borderline irresponsible. And I understand that maybe, whoa, Jay, what do you mean irresponsible? Jay Reels, come on. Because to put all your proverbial eggs in the basket to this one player, and mind you, he's a special player. He is. I'm not saying he's a bum. I'm not saying he's not going to pan out. The guy is going to be arguably the face of baseball here in the years to come. But to do that this early with that contract, the years, money, etc., it was just uncalled for. They didn't need to give him $340 million. And we understand a lot of these players get these contracts based on past productivity. Just look at his teammate on the right side of the infield, in Machado. He hasn't been great in San Diego since he's been there. He's had his moments, but has he even been in the top 10 for MVP voting? What about Bryce Harper? Same situation for him. We understand that a lot of these guys get these contracts based on what they've done prior to joining these teams. But at the same time, this was in reverse. They're paying him for future production, which hasn't even arrived. And you don't even know with injuries and all that. You can't predict that. And I know you can't really look at that. But at the same time, it's irresponsible from that regard, knowing that they could have paid him a lot less, cut those years in half. And then when he gets to age 29, even age 30, that if he wants to get that final contract, and if you're the Padres, then you could give him that money. But for them to just pretty much hand over the keys to the castle at 22, I thought was preposterous. And I like Tatis. And I hope he becomes the face of baseball and a guy that you could hang your hat on as a perennial all-star for the next dozen years. Baseball needs that. But did the Padres need to give him all that money in all those years? I think not. Other than that, you had a few things to open up training camps in certain areas, whether you're Cleveland with Shane Bieber, who didn't look like he was going to report on time because he had suffered about with COVID, but he has reported he's in camp and he's going to be raring to go, so good for him. And speaking of the Indians, their all-time leader in saves, which surprisingly I thought it would be Jose Mesa, but Cody Allen retired. He saved 149 games in a Cleveland uniform, And for whatever reason, he thought it was time for him to pack his stuff up and leave. So best of luck to him moving forward. And when you look at the rest of the landscape here early on, I know JT Real Muto, people in Philadelphia may be a little bit upset if if they're not already upset with the Eagles. Now Real Muto, who signed that $115 million five-year deal, has a broken thumb. And he's going to be out for some time. I think it's a month. So he should be ready for opening day. But not a good sign early on here in Philly's camp to get your season and get the expectations and aspirations of having a big season on the good side when you have one of your top players down. So we'll keep an eye on that as we move along. 
And how about the LA Dodgers? And not necessarily them, but this is Vegas and the odds of the over-under numbers, which we'll get to right before the baseball season. But the Dodgers have the highest win total since the 1999 New York Yankees. Vegas has their number at 104 and a half wins. Would you take the over or under? Right now, it's easy to say you're going to take the over because they're loaded. They bring in Trevor Bauer. Clayton Kershaw, who doesn't have a contract after this year, he's saying that he wants to come back and end his career in a Dodger uniform, but you know, since he's in his final year of a contract, he's going to try to have a big-time, killer, vintage Clayton Kershaw type of season. So we'll see how that shakes down, but 104 and a half? Wow, I mean, that is a lot. And I can't say right now whether or not that they're going to go over or under. I mean, the team is loaded. You know they're going to win a division. I don't care what the Padres have done so far. They are not light years, but they're going to be behind them in second place in the NL West. But that still is a very high number and a very risky one at that because not many teams get to that 105-win threshold. And we could go through some of the teams in history, but yeah, I would think I would think they would make it, but as we get closer to opening day, we'll uh, dissect it a little bit more and uh, see if LA will be on that path to north of 104 and a half wins. And speaking of the Dodgers and their pitcher Trevor Bauer, and I'm not going to spend any time on this. I'm just bringing this up because it's who knows where this is going to lead to. But this Twitter war between Noah Syndergaard and Trevor Bauer, and now you have Marcus Stroman jumping into the mix. This is one of the reasons why I didn't want Trevor Bauer on the team. Now, mind you, would this have taken place if he signed with the Mets? Absolutely not. But with Bauer putting all this attention on himself, and even after signing with the Dodgers saying, I owe the Mets fans an apology, and having to put forth some sort of me a couple for the Mets fan, uh, please, this is why I didn't want him on the team. Well, one of the reasons. And now you're going to have this feud back and forth. Now, Syndergaard, he's not going to pitch until June because he's already been transferred to the 60-day IL. So at the earliest, you're going to see him is June 1st. And you're not probably going to see him then. You may have to wait until the All-Star break. But to me, all this is much ado about nothing. This is just nonsense that Bauer brought upon himself. And that's all he wants is just to absorb all the attention on him and what he does on the mound. And granted, he was a Cy Young Award winner last year, but only in 11 games. Please, I'm glad he's on LA. And I hope if the Mets do have a chance to face him in the postseason, that they just smack him around. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So that's what we got the baseball. We'll uh, certainly get into more as time moves along and as we get into the month of March. Now quickly, let me wrap up with two other things. College basketball... Yesterday, had the big game there with Michigan beating Ohio State in Columbus, 92-87. And remember, Michigan missed all those games there for about three weeks. They came back and beat Wisconsin last week. And then yesterday, an impressive win, back and forth. A lot of lead changes against Ohio State, ranked right behind them in the country. But a big win for Juwan Howard, coach of the team and company, for them to try to stake their claim as one of the top teams in the nation. I mean, listen... You can't get any better than Gonzaga and Baylor because they haven't lost any games, even though Baylor has not played and they're scheduled to play tomorrow. But for the Wolverines to have all that time off and to not really miss a beat is kudos to the coach and their whole staff, the program of Michigan, as they try to get themselves back to where they once were. 
I'm not going to go as far back as the Fab Five teams of the 90s, but remember, they did make it to a national title game there in 2013 when they lost to Louisville. So just by them getting this far and hoping that this is just the beginning of a long magic carpet ride for the blue and gold of the Michigan Wolverines is certainly a sight to behold for their fans and for their alumni, the school, etc. But pretty much with college basketball, not much to report here. We know about Gonzaga and Baylor being your one and twos pretty much all season. We'll see where Ohio State goes as they lose yesterday. You figure Illinois will go up a spot. And how about the Big Ten? To have those three teams there, three, four, and five, as of right this second in the nation, says a lot about how far the Big Ten has come as far as college basketball goes. We all know that that is a football conference. I don't need to dissect and delve into how important the Big Ten is when it comes to college football, but to have three powerhouses there in this calendar year does say a lot for their programs and for college basketball, at least for this season. You follow that with Houston, Virginia, Alabama, Oklahoma, Villanova. Those are your top 10. And we're going to see some flip-flop here with some of these teams. And as we get closer to the tournament, which again, three weeks from yesterday will be Selection Sunday, slowly but surely getting into the college basketball, it's very hard. College basketball is a labor of love right now because when I watch college basketball going back, and I understand this is in the 90s, but you knew not only who the top teams were, but you knew that the players on these teams, how important they were, not only just for their teams, but for college basketball. And you knew a lot of these teams just based on two or three players, where right now I couldn't even mention a lot of these players on any of these college teams. I mean, Virginia technically is the last team to win a national title. And mind you, these players come and go like the wind. But I haven't sat down and watched five minutes of a Virginia game this year. Or I haven't even gotten into Baylor. I know it's tough to get into Baylor because they haven't played since February 2nd, but still, a lot of these games, although they're accessible on ESPN or wherever you're going to get your college basketball, if you have the package, but it's just that much more harder to follow because there isn't a team that you could wrap your arms around. Yeah, you could look at Gonzaga because of how far they've come as a program and now they're a powerhouse that... They've been the top team in the nation here, not just this year, but over the last several years. And Baylor has pretty much come out of nowhere to be this big-time program there. And who knows what that could lead to a possible championship this year. But as I said, slowly but surely, when after Selection Sunday, when we get into the bracket and all that, you know I'm going to put forth everything in that college basketball stew and serve it to you spoonful by spoonful, bracket by bracket, region by region. So obviously, it's one of those things that if you're not the John Rothsteins of the world or the Fran Fraschillas that really embody and bleed basketball or college basketball in this sense, then it's going to be a lot of homework for Jay Reels to be able to put forth and have that time where March Madness, we didn't have it last year, remember, but for everybody to rally the troops and get ready for a three-week sprint of craziness in Indianapolis, you know I'm going to be ready. And then finally with the Australian Open, no surprises there. I get you could look at Rafael Nadal, him having a two-love lead and then blowing it to the Tsitsipas, the Greek player, 
in straight sets after that where there are no excuses. Give it up to Sispidas for completing that comeback and to beat Nadal the way he did. You have that and then Ash Barty losing, who is the number one seed on the women's side. But besides that, Serena, she made a valiant run to the semifinals where she lost to Naomi Osaka. And that was one match that I actually did watch. Remember the time difference, but thankfully it was early enough here in the East that I was able to watch it. And Osaka was just dominant. Pretty much you're watching a young Serena, how that means overall throughout the career. Will she match anything close to what Serena Williams can do? Way too early to tell, but she's off to a great start where she is now 4-0 in major tournaments. The first time, or the first player since Monica Seles who had done that to win their first four Grand Slam tournaments. And kudos to Naomi Osaka, but Serena, a lot of people think that this could be it for her. I'll believe it when I see it. I'm sure there's still a lot of tennis left in her. Now, mind you, will she get that elusive 24th title that she's been looking for over the last few years? Now, she's knocked on the door, but she hasn't been able to barge through it. So I think we haven't heard the last of Serena. You would think that she's going to come back here in a few months, regroup, and then we'll see her at Roland Garros for the French Open. And then Djokovic, what could you say? He's a guy that now has 18 Grand Slams. He's two behind both Nadal and Federer. And Djokovic, when it's all said and done, he's probably going to surpass both of those guys because Federer, he's long in the tooth right now, although he's looking to come back here in the weeks to come with some of these tournaments. But how much is left in his tank definitely remains to be seen. And then with Nadal, we know he can win in Roland Garros. That's his surface. We know how dominant of a clay player he is, but what does that mean for the Wimbledon on grass and for the hard surface at the U.S. Open, for him to get back on the beam, winning more, Grand Slam titles where Djokovic this is his domain right here his ninth Australian Open he beats Daniel Medvedev where a lot of people thought Medvedev was going to give him a run and he did do so in that first set where Djokovic came out on top 7-5 but then disposed of him 6-2 6-2 after that and Djokovic is your Australian Open champion And now we have a few months to exhale before we get ready for Roland Garros. And who knows how things are going to be here moving forward. So we have a few more months to wait until our next Grand Slam. So pretty much a ho-hum Australian Open closing to the tournament. We got the first one out of the way. Now we have to wait a few months until the end of May before we could even talk tennis from a Grand Slam perspective when the second of four will take place there right around Memorial Day. And let's wrap up here with my hero in Zero of the Week as I do each and every week. My hero of the week is Miles Turner, the Indiana Pacers forward. And how about this? This doesn't get any better if you ask me. Last week, the Pacers lost to the Chicago Bulls where an unhappy fan had sent him a Venmo request. And for those who don't know what Venmo is, it's an app that you can send and receive money. He sent Turner a request of $100, not once, but three times because he blamed Turner on the loss. Now, Turner, who doesn't really follow up with negativity, as he said in his Twitter feed and through the press, he actually followed up with this fan and sent him one red cent. He sent him a penny and with a comment saying, here's a penny for your thoughts. Now, the fan posted this interaction on his Twitter page. 
So it gained so much traction that the random fans out there sent him a total of $3,500 as a Friday night. Now, I don't know what it is as of today. I should have checked on that. But the bottom line is, is that the $3,500 that he received up until then, he's going to match that and donate that to the state of Texas. And he's from Bedford, Texas. I don't know what part of Texas that is. But because he's from the state, whatever by the end of today, he's going to match what the fans have sent him, all because of this one fan who sent him $100. So talk about being generous and charitable and turning this around for a positive cause. It does not get any better than that for Miles Turner to pay it forward to his community, his state, his region, whatever it may be. Miles, my man, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is Seattle Mariners president Kevin Mather for some insensitive comments that he made toward a couple of members of the organization calling out former pitcher who's now a coach, Hishashi Iwakuma, for his English of being terrible, and outfield prospect Julio Rodriguez stating that his English is not tremendous. I get that those may seem very innocuous in the grand scheme of things or whether he meant that as far as just being comical, but we all know. You can't make a comment like that in 2021 and not that I'm about to cancel him or say, oh, they need to fire him, whatever. It was irresponsible. He should have known better. He has apologized for his remarks, but he should have known that anytime you're going to make, whether it's tongue in cheek or not, but anytime you're going to make a comment about someone's language, about their background, not being tremendous, terrible, whatever it is, terrible optic, my guy. So Kevin Mather, you are my zero of the week. So that'll do it, episode 179, just about in the books, but not my final podcast for the month, as later on this week, you definitely want to tune in because I have my most candid, open, and just very interesting exchange with a former two-time All-American at Minnesota, two-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers, safety Tyrone Carter joins me, and this was a conversation I recorded with him a few months back. So it's a little bit dated because we talk about what's going on in the country. That was the time where Joe Biden was elected as the president-elect for this country. And we get into a bunch of different things. And he expounds on a lot of different things, whether it's about the league, about teammates, about uh, just you got to listen to it. That's all I'm going to say about that. You definitely want to tune in this coming Thursday around 12 noon. I'll release the podcast with my special guest, Tyrone Carter. So you definitely don't want to miss out on that. As I say each and every week, I appreciate all of you for taking the time out to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. But I do ask of you to help the growth and expansion of this podcast to please subscribe, rate, and review on wherever you get your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. You know all the platforms. You can even go to the website at jreels.com for more on me, podcast, etc. So in order to get the former athletes like Tyrone Carter or the current athlete, the blogger, studio host, broadcaster, writer, whomever it may be, your participation by giving me whatever it is, four stars, five stars, whatever it is, a review, post a rating, all that, subscribe. It's going to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there so people could get the word on what J Reels is, what I do, what I talk about, etc., so if you haven't done so, please do so the second you finish listening to this, and I would sincerely appreciate it. 
If you want to send me a message the old-fashioned way by email or go to any of my social media accounts, you can do so and hit me up with a DM at Instagram, whether it's J Reels or the J Reels Podcast, which is Strictly Sports. On Twitter, J Reels one just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page. And then the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. For any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, I'll be sure to follow up with you ASAP. And if you want to contribute to the podcast as far as production of the podcast, the website, equipment, etc., you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com. Again, forever grateful and thankful if you want to contribute anything towards this endeavor. It will be without question something that I will truly cherish and be grateful for because whether you do or do not know, it's in the blood, it's in the DNA. I love sports. I love talking about sports. I've been doing so pretty much since I came out of the womb, people. This is what I love to do. This is what I want to do to get into everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until this Thursday, my special guest, Tyrone Carter. You definitely don't want to miss that. So until next time on the J-Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.